All right, on the last show that I did, I talked about that I wanted to do a compare and contrast of both the movie Death Wish and of uh, the movie The Brave One, which is pretty much, I guess sometimes I'll call it a reimagining, but it was pretty much a remake or an update of the 1974 Charles Bronson movie Death Wish, and this one was made in 2007 and starred Jodie Foster. All right, before we jump in any further and get into the synopsis of The Brave One, It actually turned out to go quite a bit longer than I thought it would, and I have uh, I've just spoiled the crap out of this movie. So if you haven't watched it or you don't want to know how it ends, and you and you want to watch it, go ahead. You know, hold off on listening to this. Go ahead and watch the movie, and then you can come back and kind of listen to this. Pretty much what this show is, it's going to be a very detailed synopsis. I've dropped in a few clips, and I'll make a few comments. At the end of the podcast, I'm going to make some comments, too, about what I did like, what I didn't like about the movie, where I thought some of the flaws were. Now, I'm going to do the same thing with Death Wish. And I had originally, my intention was to do the synopsis on both movies and then do a compare and contrast. But what I think is going to happen is I'm going to change that a little bit, and I'm going to do another detailed review of Death Wish. And I may, at the end of that one, depending on how long Death Wish goes, I may do the the compare and contrast right then, or I may do that on a separate kind of shorter show. Uh, So we'll see how that goes, and and, uh, I'll see kind of what I think the flow of it is. So anyway, uh, you've been warned, this will contain spoilers, as will the next uh, couple of shows that I'm going to do concerning these movies. I would say, though, that if you... It's probably going to be better for you. You're going to be able to follow along a little bit more easily if you actually watch both movies before you do it. You won't have to just because the, the level of detail that I'm going to do hopefully will give you a picture of what the movies is, uh, what the what the movies are about and what they're trying to do. Uh, but it, I, I feel it's always better to go ahead and watch them yourself and... Uh, and that way, watch them, and also watch them before you've listened to the show, because then you don't you don't have any preconceived um, notions, I guess. Or, or I guess what would be more interesting is if some of the stuff that I see as flaws, if you watch them before you listen to this podcast, if you pick up on those same things that I did, or if you pick up on stuff that's different. So, or, or if you say, well, you know, when I watched it, I didn't really get that. So you can you be able to. Maybe we can have more of a debate or um, say, well, this is something I think you missed or something I thought you kind of overreached on, blah, 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 that type of stuff. So anyway, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and get on with the show. If this sounds a little dropped in, it's because it is. I uh, came back and and edited this in a little bit um, after I was done. So you may hear a repeat of some of this stuff later in the show. All right, enjoy the episode. Jodie Foster's character plays a uh, radio talk show host. Her name is Erica Bain. And she has an in, an NPR-type radio program called Streetwalk. It's a kind of a touchy-feely program where she walks around different parts of the city, makes sound recordings, and then comments about them and her observation, or her observations of the city in general. And in the opening, she says that she is a witness to all the beauty and ugliness that is disappearing from the city. And she's portrayed as a hip urbanite, probably with very liberal beliefs, 
you have the sense that she has been in the city for a long time and that she has some savviness about how to navigate uh, the city in, in relative safety. Now, she's also going to be married soon and, again, to show how evolved and progressive she is, her fiancé, of course, is an Iraqi doctor. And it doesn't say so, but you, you kind of, you may think that he may or may not be Muslim. So, again, this goes to some of the heavy-handedness of, of the movie. Uh, she goes later to an art show at a gallery that one of her friends runs. And the artist that's doing the show is there. He just happens to have, and it's either, a, I think it's a painting. It could be a giant photo, but a, a floor-to-ceiling type thing. And like I said, I think it's a painting. Uh, it's One of them, he's like, oh, this is this laundromat. And then there one just happens to be a current gun store down in Chinatown. <laughs> so can you say foreshadowing anyone? And it depicts her of having this kind of idyllic life that's filled with culture and where nothing really bad happens to her. She lives kind of in this, you know, rainbow coalition world. Um, the world is her oyster. She's aware that bad things do happen and that bad people are out there, but those things don't really intersect with her world. Now, I'm going to talk a bit about casting before we get too deep into this. And when you look at how the story was written and what the dialogue is and, what, and, and, and the feel that you're getting from that stuff, I started to feel that her character and, and the character of... Uh, her fiancé, which is his name in the movie, is David, it would have been better suited to someone in their 20s. Uh, they don't maybe necessarily have a lot of life experience. Now, Jodie Foster is, was probably about 45 years old when this movie was made. And while she may not look it, I still had a hard time buying into sort of that wide-eyed naivete of her character, especially for someone who had been in the city and who according to the intro we got, had been out and about in the city for so long. You know, and as a couple, they just can't keep their hands off each other, and they're, you know, the most in-love couple that the world has ever seen. And again, I just felt that it would it would have given more, um, not necessarily realism, but it would have brought me into it a little bit more if they had been portrayed by younger actors. So anyway, that's just kind of one of my pet peeves of many of this thing. So anyway, she and uh, her uh, fiancé, again, his name is David, they go to the park and they take uh, their German Shepherd with them, and David is tossing the ball for the dog to fetch, and it fetch, excuse me, and it bounces down into a tunnel. And this whole time, they're pretty much totally unaware of what's going on around them. Uh, they're only focused on each other, it's starting to get dark, and it it takes them a few minutes to notice that the dog hasn't come back. So they start heading off and looking for him, and they head down, of course, a dark tunnel. They find the dog, but it looks like he's on a leash, and he's not coming to them when they call. And now you kind of see on their faces, they know that something isn't right. And they find three scumbags, and they have the dog, and they're drinking, and you know it's not going to go well for our soon-to-be-married couple. And by now, it's just pitch black. And when they had first got to the park, there were other people around. And of course, now it's totally deserted. The lead thug says he wants a reward. 
And basically David says, no, just give us the dog back. And it goes downhill from there. The thugs are um, recording what's happening on a small video camera. They start to taunt them. Uh, they start calling them names, coming up close to them, walking around them, grabbing at them, and getting them kind of to be off guard and scared. And then right then, they had the opportunity, and they should have taken it. They should have turned and ran away, and they should have left the dog behind. But, of course, that doesn't happen. Eventually, um, and this and this all happens relatively quick. Eventually, Erica and David, they try to placate the thugs, and they say, here, you know, just take our money, take what you know, whatever you want. And then the thugs, that kind of like just sets them off. And they're like, give us all your stuff. Give us everything you got. And one of the dudes grabs Erica. And then David hits him. And then that's when it all goes to hell. The thugs just beat the crap out of both of them. And the leader, if you want to call him that, had like a, it looked like a lead a lead pipe about two feet long. And he beats and, and kicks and just wails on David. And then the other guys are throwing Erica around and beating the crap out of her. And later we find out, of course, that the beating was so severe that David dies. So she's taken to the hospital. We're introduced to Terrence Howard's character. And he's a police detective named uh, Sean Mercer, I think is the last name. And we're introduced to another character at this time who's a, who's a, a bad guy. And we're told that he's been beating his wife and abusing his wife. And he has this little stepdaughter, and Terrence Howard's character, or Sean, we'll just go ahead and call him Sean, is trying to get the little girl, he wants to get her to say that his her stepdad has been abusing the mom. Well, it turns out a little bit later, the reason that they're in the hospital this time is that the mom is in there, and she's got a gunshot wound to the face. And so Terrence Howard, or Sean, the, the, the Detective Mercer, is saying, you know, I got you now, and, and we're going to, you know, you've, you've shot her, and she eventually dies. So getting back kind of to uh, Jodie Foster's character, Erica, we find out that she's been in a coma for about three weeks, and that David's family has already had a funeral for him, and so she freaks out about that, and, you know, she wants to say goodbye, but of course she can't, and they did that because they didn't know if she was ever going to come out of the coma. She's eventually released from the hospital, goes home. When she tries to go back outside, she gets, uh, you know, she's too afraid. Uh, and then a little while later, and it may be the next day, they're not real clear on that, she leaves to go to the police station and find out kind of what's happening on the murder investigation. And, of course, she feels that everybody's out to get her, and if somebody's walking next to her, she expects to be attacked. She gets to the police station, she waits around, and surprise, surprise, they keep her waiting for hours. Nothing happens. She finally leaves. And from here, she goes to the gun store that she had seen in the painting that's down in Chinatown. And I'm going to play a clip here of her in the gun store. Now, the music that they start playing when she walks in is like super ominous. The, the camera pans slowly over the guns. Um... There's a guy in the store at the time when she walks in, and he kind of uh, he kind of hears what's going on, and you'll hear this stuff in the clip. And then later, what happens is he literally takes her through like dark back alleyways, and he says, "Wait here," and he and he goes down into a dark, deep underground hole to retrieve the gun. And uh, you know, then they make the transaction, they kind of move on from there. But so I'll go ahead and play that clip now. Can I help you? 
Yeah, uh, I want to buy a gun. License? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I need a license. Once you get one, fill out this form, and we'll notify you in 30 days. Well, I, I need to get something now. Sorry. That's illegal. Hey. I won't survive 30 days. What happened to you? Me, nothing. $1,000. $1,000. Okay, but I, I need to learn how to use it. No shit. Follow me. right here. In here. It's a car K9. Check to see if it's loaded. Uh, how do I do that? The chamber. Pull the slide back. It's got internal safety so you don't shoot yourself. Loads from the handle. You pay me now, it's yours. I'll throw in the bullets. Yeah, I'll take it. I tell you, I really like the line of, it's got an internal safety so you won't shoot yourself. <laughs> that's, that's just ridiculous. Like if a gun's got a safety, you can't shoot yourself. Well, anyway. She now has the gun, and at first I thought that it may have been a couple of days later, but it but she, it looks like she's wearing the same shirt. So anyway, it, it's in the evening and she goes into a convenience store and is in the back and she's getting like a soda or something. And a guy comes in and he shoots his wife, who is the clerk who's working behind the counter. After the shooting, uh, Erica's cell phone goes off and the shooter comes back to find whoever it is that's in the store and he's going to end up, you know, he's going to try and kill that person. Well, it turns out that she ends up shooting and killing him. Now, she's a little freaked out by it, and she goes to check on the woman behind the counter. She finds that she's dead. She notices that there's a security monitor, and she takes the tape from the machine. Now, one thing that's kind of funny is that the man who shot his wife was using a small snub-nosed revolver, excuse me, and he shot her five times. I counted it. You know, I went back and counted it. Now, most... Not all uh, of small frame revolvers only ha only hold five rounds. And what I really would like to have seen is that he gets the drop on her. You know, and she's frozen up. She has her gun out, but she's kind of frozen. He's got his gun pointed at her. He pulls the trigger and it goes click, click, and then she shoots him. Uh, but that didn't happen. And uh, so anyway, when the police show up to the scene, of course, this Detective Mercer and his partner and... And they go and they make some pretty, or at least Mercer does, make some pretty wild leaps and says some things that that really wouldn't make sense if they were if they were used to going to shootings. One of the things that he says is, well, they're talking about uh, 
why wasn't the money taken? Why, you know, how come the tape is missing if the if the machine is still working? And Mercer asks his partner, he says, well, there's three shots and, and the shooter only killed this, only shot this guy, only shot him once. Why is that? And then his partner actually says, you know, normal stuff like, oh, maybe they were nervous. Maybe the guy's a bad shot. And then Mercer says, oh, maybe the shooter's never, maybe he's never filed a gun. Yeah. Helps if I talk. And then Mercer says, maybe he's never fired a gun before. Well, you really wouldn't think that. I mean, if, and especially if you're kind of a seasoned detective in a city where there's a lot of shootings, you realize that a lot of times, and you don't have to be an expert or anything to know this, but you can look on the news and they'll say, you know, 15 shots were fired and, and the guy was only hit twice. So, you know, to them, I, I don't think that they would make that leap that the shooter had never fired a gun before. I don't think that would really enter into their consciousness. And again, a lot of this stuff isn't, it's not that it's super bad writing, which, but it kind of is. But it's just, they're getting it totally wrong. And it's not that much, it's it's not any easier to get it wrong. It would have been just as easy to, to have them say, you know, kind of at this point in the story, well, yeah, you're probably right. You know, somebody was all amped up because of the situation and then they fired and only one of the, one of the three uh, got to the, to the bad guy and uh, one of those three just happened to be a lucky shot and it got him right in the neck. So anyway, um, a few days later, She's on the subway train, and two thugs rob a kid of his iPod. The kid gets off uh, at the next stop. There's also like another family, a guy with his kid is there. And then now it's just her and the two thugs on the train. They kind of turn around, and they see her, and they're like, you know, what is she, nuts, staying on the train with us? So they focus in on her and say that they're basically going to rape her. She shoots them, and she's, you know, kind of like all amped up, but she's not really scared. And then the next stop, she gets up and walks away. And what I'll do is I'll go ahead and play kind of like the inner dialogue that she has with herself. I should have walked out of that train. I could have just shown them the gun. They wouldn't have hurt me. Why don't my hands shake? Why doesn't somebody stop me? So now, of course, the police are at the subway shooting, and of course, it's going to be Mercer and his partner is actually named, I think, Vitaly or something like that. And anyway, they kind of find that there's a nine millimeter casing on in the subway floor, and they are immediately starting to go, "Oh, is it going to be the same one? Let's let's check it against brass catchers, whatever the hell that thing is. I don't know. I don't. Again, I don't know if at some of the leaps they're making here." would be made if you look at one of the most common rounds in the united states today it's going to be nine millimeter uh, so i'm going to go ahead and play now i'm going to play a little bit of a clip of some of the stuff that they're talking about but then now some of the things once they kind of decided that this may be the the same person for whatever reason um then they start kind of making some some asking some questions that i think are probably good questions and that they may try and ask. So I'm going to go ahead and play that right now. It's like a 9mm automatic. Like from the other night? Yeah. Check it against brass catchers, see if it matches. 
I mean, what are we missing? Well, I wish I knew. And look, you got a small guy sitting. These two punks come at him with a knife, and you know, he shoots the first one without even getting out of his seat. Mike, go on, I'm with you. It's like maybe Mr. Average Joe just decided, you know what, I'm not gonna take it anymore. And, and I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. I mean, the kind of guy you wouldn't even notice. Well, if that's true, he's getting better. Yeah, every bullet hit home. I don't think that the police would be making these types of leaps just because it, they were both shot with a 9mm. I don't think that would be their first intuitive thing to go to. And again, I said that's going to be one of the most common cartridges in the United States today. And to say that they are, you would think that they were somehow connected because these two people that didn't have anything else in common just because they were... Um, had prior criminal records. I know they got to do it to move the movie along, but again, this is just some of the stuff that I think that wasn't done very smart, or it's counting on the fact that the audience isn't going to be aware of certain things. So, you know, you probably have a filmmaker who's really not into guns or really is not into, you know, police procedural stuff. And again, I know they're doing things and they're trying to sort of reimagine or remake Death Wish and the scene where the two guys get shot and killed in the subway was basically a scene directly from Death Wish. So what happens next in the movie is that there's a big headline from the New York Post that says, Vigilante, bloodbath on the subways. Now, I don't know why in the world two people that got shot down in the subway, why, they, why the press would make this big leap to there's, there's now a vigilante. You know, murders and killings and shootings go on every day. And especially if they knew the guys had priors, they would say, well, maybe it was a drug deal that went bad. You know, your first instinct in the press wouldn't be to scream vigilante. So at this point, kind of in my review, I'm going to move a little quicker and faster through the thing. Uh, the detective Mercer sees her outside the subway that same night when they're doing the investigation. He goes up and talks to her. Uh, she asks him for an interview, and then he kind of backs off. A little later, uh, the next day or so, he actually goes down to the station. He wants to talk to her a little bit, and he lets her know, hey, I, I looked into your case, and the guys that are working on it are pretty good. She says, well, do you want to do an interview now? And what she kind of does, which is kind of a neat way how she does it, in the guise of the interview, she's sort of pumping him for information. And then this brings in kind of another plot point is they're watching, there's a television on in the background, and there's a guy named Murrow, and that's the same guy whose wife had supposedly killed herself that he thinks uh, that Murrow shot his wife when they were in the hospital that first time. And that's who the stepdaughter that he was trying to get away from. And he's saying, hey, this guy, you know, he owns all this this parking owns all the parking lots out in uh, some place. And um, so he's got all this money, but he also, you know, imports drugs and guns and, you know, he's a real bad guy and blah, blah, blah. And he goes on to tell her, I can never, ever get anything to stick on this dude. And now he's killed his wife and, you know, he's going to get away with that too and blah, blah, blah. Now, what comes up pretty soon and is important, and when I find the clip, I'll go ahead and play it, is he talks about, they talk about, well, would you ever take the law into your own hands type thing? And, 
and he gives some answers on that. And what I'll do is I'll go ahead and, and play that clip now. And why can't you nail him? Because I follow the law. Well, there's nothing you can do? Nothing that's legal. So, there's nothing you can do? No. No matter how bad I feel about it, I petitioned that she be made a ward of the court, but his lawyers killed that one stone dead, so... Ever shot anyone? Yeah. Did your hands shake? No. But that's one of the benefits of being on the right side. The benefit that that asshole and the subway shooter don't have. And you think they're the same? They both walked away from the murder, didn't they? So the next thing you know is that her killing spree is continues. She's walking down the street. She kind of runs into this dude in a car. And he's a pimp. He's got a girl in the back of a car. She ends up rescuing her. The guy tries to run them over. And she ends up shooting and killing him. Uh, the next thing that happens is that... Detective Mercer holds a press conference. And he's saying that, look, the information on uh detective mercer holds a press conference and says the ballistics show or the analysis of you know the casings and the bullets that we dug out of the bodies basically show that it's all coming from the same gun and that the thing at the convenience store the two dudes in the subway and now this guy who was a pimp or whatever they've all been shot by the same person and then of course there's a big showing of people are calling in and saying that they think the vigilante's doing good. Some people are saying, oh, it's terrible, blah, blah, blah. Um, it kind of goes on from there to... Um, she goes and kills the guy that Detective Mercer has been trying to get. And I forget his name. I'm not going to go back and look it up. But she ends up killing him. And right before she goes to do this, she goes and does it at one of his buildings. And right before she goes and does this, she's talking to Detective Mercer on the phone saying, you know... What do you do when you can't sleep? Blah, blah, blah. And she gets into the elevator with the guy while she's still on the phone with Mercer. And he hears the ding of the elevator. And, he, you know, it shows like a puzzled look on his face. So she ends up killing that guy. Now, the way that this guy ends up getting killed or the way that she ends up killing him is that she kind of confronts him. And they're up on the top level of this parking building of the building of the parking garage part of it. And the way that she ends up actually killing him is that she's going to shoot him and she follows him up in the elevator. They're up on the top level of the parking garage of the building that they're in. She confronts him. He's got his car door open. She goes to reach into her purse to grab out her gun. But he whips out a crowbar and hits her with it. Um, they get kind of in a brief struggle. The crowbar is dropped. She hits him in the face and he kind of backs up over by the... Uh, uh, over by the edge of the wall and then she comes at him again and then it cuts and you see that he's you know laying dead on the pavement so either she pushed him or she hit him in the head and he fell off now the cops bring in the kid on the subway train whose ipod was stolen by the two thugs that she had killed earlier he tells the cops that when he left the train there was only a woman passenger left and the kid, basically, he's like a total douche. Um, and the way he talks to the police and how he describes uh, 
you know, the woman or Erica is just, it's just laughable. Uh, the sketch turns out to be that it's pretty much just generic and goes nowhere. Uh, later, Mercer goes to Erica's house and says that a uniformed officer caught the girlfriend of the suspect trying to pawn a ring and that the boyfriend fit the description that Erica had given earlier of one of her attackers. They have her come down for a lineup. She recognizes the guy, but says that she did not. And they uh, they end up leaving the station. They go to a diner, and this is what is said. Speaking of gifts, you know, someone gave me a gift the other night. Yeah. We call that guy we saw on, on TV at the coffee shop. The one I've been trying to put away for three years. Apparently somebody else must have had something against him because we're not talking about nine millimeter here. It got real personal. Yeah, I read about it. We got some more information on that subway shooting. Turns out there was a woman on the car. Now, all this time, we've been looking for a man with a gun. It was a woman with a grudge. Well, I guess there's a lot of us out there. You know, Erica, when I was a rookie, I used to give myself this test. I would ask myself if there was someone that I knew that had committed a crime. But I have the fortitude to put them away. What kind of someone? Someone close to me. Like the best friend I could ever... I could ever hope to have. And... I always hoped that I would have the courage and the dedication to say yes. And do you? I do. And it's important that you know that. I know that. It's what I admire about you. One more piece of evidence. And she goes down. a good detective. You miss nothing. Now this clip is super important and the reason why it is is because it plays out later in the movie and what we have to remember is there was a scene earlier where he talked about that he follows the law and even if there was and what he was saying in that conversation is that even if there was something that he wanted to do if it was illegal that he wouldn't do it. So they're setting up that this guy is a good guy, he follows the law, and then again in this scene that we just heard, he's basically telling her, even if it was the best friend that I could ever hope to have, 
I would still turn that person in and arrest that person if they're if they were committing a crime. And again, this stuff will will play out later in the movie. So at this point in the movie, she is starting to go to pawn shops because she knows that a person tried to pawn the ring in uh, Spanish Harlem. So she goes around to the different pawn shops showing the ring and trying to get the name and maybe a phone number of the person who is trying to pawn that. She is successful in getting that and ends up going to uh, the address where there's a bunch of women outside. She calls the number she got from the pawn dealer and she watches the women outside, one of whom very conveniently answers the phone. Uh, later she goes up and approaches the woman, talks to her, and the woman says, I can't help you. I saw the video basically of what they did to you and I don't want that to happen to me. Meanwhile, Mercer is having the call he got from Erica the other night to find out where it came from. Uh, he has one of his friends trace the call and he knows that it comes from... Uh, they can tell that it comes from the area where the guy who was the parking lot owner and who was the uh, gun smuggler and, and drug smuggler, he knows it, com it came from that area. So he knows that she was at least in that area at the time that that guy was killed. So then it cuts back to uh, Erica walking down some alley or someplace and she gets a phone call, gets a text message, with an attachment from the lady uh, who, who had tried to pawn the ring. And she says, sorry, um, she's had a change of heart. She gives her the address of her boyfriend or of the guy that did the beating and also attaches a video file that, that she emails or has, has sent to her through the phone. Now, after she watches this uh, video on her phone, she then uh, texts mercer or sends him the sends him the video file to his phone so she goes to the address where the bad guys are he she sees a couple of them she sees a guy that's got the dog she goes down to where he is there's like a gate in between them he turns around he doesn't really recognize her and he says like what do you want you want something she's like i want my dog back bang and just shoots him right in the head um the other two dudes hear the gunshot and they just take off running she chases after them her dog gets away, and um, one of the guys who was in the original attack sees the dog, uh, gra starts goes to grab the dog. She actually comes up, Erica actually comes up behind that guy, shoots him like two times in the back. The dog still is taking off running, so she's still following the dog. She finally catches up to the third and last guy, the kind of like the ringleader of them. Now, meanwhile, this whole time, Mercer is, like, rushing to the scene. He's got the address and some of the other stuff, and he knows where he knows where she's heading. So he's headed over there. So this whole time, she's kind of chasing after the, the third bad guy, who, again, who's the leader. Um, it's kind of a maze that she's going through. She goes back into, like, kind of a storage area or a big basement area under in the underground part of where they live. And she sees the dog, and that's how she's been tracking him. She's been listening for the dog, and she's barking. And the dog has been trying to get back to that other dude because he's had he's had the dog now for months. So anyway, uh, he kind of the, the guy kind of sneaks up behind her, gets the jump on her. So the, those two are struggling. All of a sudden, boom, Mercer comes in, 
How he knew exactly where to go, I don't know. Uh, but again, very conveniently, he knows exactly where to go. He breaks in, and he's pointing the gun at the guy. So the guy basically stops, he complies, he gets to the ground, and I'm going to go ahead and play uh, the clip of what happens next. shoot bad guys I've joined that club now you nick me graze me but you wound me it's about three feet my hands are shaking you just make sure you miss my heart So she takes off. Uh, Mercer ends up putting the gun in the uh, the bad guy's hand, and then he calls it in. The dog uh, he lets the dog loose. The dog takes off. And he goes back to Jodie Foster's character. It catches up with her just as she is walking back through the tunnel. 
where the original uh, beating and death of her fiance, both you know the beating of her and her fiance, and the subsequent death of her fiance took place. The next clip that you're going to hear is how the movie ends. It's the last thing that's said in the movie, uh, and this is said by her character, uh, talking about what has happened to her, what she's become. There is no going back to that other person, that other place, this thing, this stranger. She is all you are now. That was the movie, The Brave One, in its entirety, and that was released in 2007, and the length of it was about two hours. Now, there's a lot of fat in this movie that could be cut out. There were a lot of things in this movie that I would have liked to have seen done, which I think would have made the story more believable and would have been a more logical way to tell the story without really having to um, resort to these big leaps that the police make. And a, a real good example of that is is that the first shooting that she goes to, they make kind of a big deal that the money is still in the register. However, at that point, the logical thing in that situation would be for you to say, this dude came in, rushed in real quick, bang, 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 shot his ex-wife, and there was somebody in the back of the store, and this guy came to get them, and that guy, you know, had a gun, you know, had an, uh, and probably in New York would have been considered an illegal firearm, but had a firearm, defended himself, and then didn't want to get in trouble, so he left. That would be a much more logical scenario to paint out rather than the one that, you know, they think there's this huge big mystery of what's going on. Now, later in the, in the movie, when there's the subway shooting, they make the comment, and I had commented about this earlier, uh, in the show, they made the comment of it was a nine millimeter, and they act like this is some big, you know, clue. And why you would try and connect the two at that point, I don't know. They make again, they make another assumption of well, because the the one dude had money in his pocket still, it probably wasn't a robbery or some type of a drug transaction gone bad. But again, I don't know why you would try and connect it to the thing that happened at the convenience store. And what I would like to have seen them do is, because again, it's it's uh, Mercer and uh, Vitaly or whatever his name is that are working both cases, is that they when they get their... Uh, when they turn in the casings and the stuff to be run and tested, a lab technician comes up to him and says, hey, here's something weird. The same gun was used at that convenience store killing as was used in the, uh, in the, in the subway shooting. And then they make the leap. And then that's when the information gets leaked out. And I guess that's how the press supposedly got it, was that maybe a technician leaked out to him that, that the... Uh, there were these two separate shootings that didn't seem to be involved that came from the same gun. But again, you know, I would have liked to have seen something like that happen. And then you, it, then it, it starts to turn the wheels in the detectives' heads of, well, maybe something is going on here. Maybe this is a guy like a Bernie uh, Bernard Getz. And I think they may have even mentioned that at one point in the show. Uh, a little later in the movie, they... Um, they also do, they spend a lot of time, and when we say a lot of time, what I'm saying is in kind of 
movie time, so to speak, they they make the point a, a couple of times in the movie and kind of beat it over your head that Terrence Howard's character, Mercer, is a guy who is going to follow the law, who has a lot of respect for the law, and who, while he may feel that he would like to go outside the law, that's not something he's going to do because that's what separates him from the bad guys. That's what that. So that's kind of like what the core person that he is. And at the end of the movie, when he when that turns around, when he gives his gun to uh, to Jodie Foster's character, Erica. I sat in the theater, I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? You just spent all this time telling me how this guy is, you know, straight up, blah, blah, blah. And of course, you know, it sort of had to end that way. But again, I thought that was a flaw in how they developed his character. I thought it would have been much better if you saw him do some questionable things or if he was the kind of guy who says, look, you know, um, you know, sometimes stuff happens and I'd like to be able to, you know, do more about it and blah, blah. But they, they didn't really spend a lot of time. What they spent time with, uh, showing us as the viewer and as the audience was that this guy is like more of a straight up guy, and even if it was his best friend, you know, the bet in the movie and the clip that I played, he talks about if it was the best friend I could ever hope to have, I would turn him in because that's the kind of guy that I am. Now another flaw that I thought with the movie was, and one thing again that I thought could have been easily remedied and something that would have would have showed how a person can use a little bit of modern technology to sort of teach themselves things once erica gets the gun so once she buys that gun from the from the guy basically buys it off the street what i would have and he just basically shows her just really basic how to do stuff what i would have liked to seen uh, just a quick scene it could have been a 30 second montage of her going on to youtube or going onto the internet and finding out how to how how to uh, take apart the gun, how to clean it, how to sh- you know, and, and looking at videos, how to shoot it, and then do another quick fifteen second scene of her going out to the woods, of her going out um, you know someplace upstate New York or someplace where she's going to be alone, and she's firing the gun, she's learning how to use it, and showing her at least getting having some proficiency with it and maybe her doing that after that convenience store um after that convenience store thing goes down the killing in the convenience store goes down so that you you kind of buy that she's starting to get some level of competency and some level of of uh understanding of how the gun works but of course they didn't do that you as an audience are just supposed to believe that and and what they tell you through mercer's character is that oh she's getting the, the not they don't say she but they say the shooter's getting better um after the uh, uh after the pimp is killed that's when i would really probably would have liked to have seen the thing about like you're starting to get like oh there's this vigilante who's going out and who's doing stuff um and I thought they did a little bit of, they kind of showed that a little bit when people were calling into her radio show and uh, people are voicing different opinions, things like that. Earlier I'd mentioned that I thought that there was some fat in the movie that could be trimmed away. And a lot of things, that the points that they were driving home, they had kind of already made. They had already made the point that uh, Erica and David were in love, and uh, they were soon to be married, and they had this ideal relationship, and blah, blah, blah. And they kind of kept going back to that. Um, 
and I guess on you know on on a, maybe on more of an emotional level, some of those scenes might have worked. But I think you could have cut out a couple of them, and uh, either replaced them with different type of scenes, or just gotten rid of them altogether, and it wouldn't have hurt the movie. And again, one of the main things that I that I keep kind of going back to is I really would have liked to have seen the characters of David and Erica portrayed by younger actors because I felt that the and I'd mentioned this before, but I felt that the way that the dialogue was, the way the situations that they were in, the um, the way that the story was kind of being told and and what in how you're introduced to these people as characters in the movie, I felt would have had more resonance, would have been much better portrayed by somebody who is younger. Uh, again, I said Jodie Foster was in her, I don't know, like she's like 45 or so when the movie was made, so she's an older person. And some of the things I thought, I had a kind of a hard time buying that somebody who had lived that long in the city wouldn't be aware of certain things. So... And I know there's people out there that have their head in the sand, but again, her her whole radio show is about going around and, and seeing all the good parts of the city, but also talking about kind of the seamy underbelly of the city where bad things happen to good people. So, uh, you know, had you had a younger character who you could have maybe bought the fact that they were a little bit more naive or a little bit more self-absorbed or drawn into their own worlds and... I know you could argue it either way. You could say, well, there's people that are in their 70s that are like that, that don't think anything bad will ever happen and that aren't aware of anything that goes on around them. Now, if I was going to recommend that you watch this movie, would I give it a yes or a no? And I'd probably say to give it a pass uh, unless you wanted to really kind of compare it to Death Wish and you'd want to say, well, okay, let's see what they did different. Let's see what they did the same. Uh, but as a as a remake or as a reimagining, I feel that it kind of falls short. Um, and let me throw in one other thing: at the end of the movie, Mercer gives uh, Erica his gun and has her, and he and she shoots him. She shoots the bad guy. She shoots him right in the face from about oh, I don't know four inches, four to six inches away. Then they walk over about five feet away, and he shoots, and, and ultimately. As you know, he says, "Okay, you got to shoot me with with your gun now, and it'll be that it'll make it look like that he and I had a struggle." Well, none of the forensic evidence would show that. I mean, and it's and this is basic stuff that most people would get from watching CSI. And I know that you know you can't really trust stuff on TV, but most people understand that as far as police procedures. They can have a forensic guy come in and he's going to say, well, wait a minute, your story isn't jiving up with what you're saying. You were shot back over here, but there's no, you know, all the blood splatters over here. This guy, it showed there's by the powder burns on his face and by this other stuff. And he was down in a kneeling position, you know, and he was shot right in the face. Um, it, you know, none of this stuff adds up. How come if you were that close when you shot him, how come you don't have any of his blood on you? So, I mean... Any investigator worth that had been on the job more than two minutes would look at that stuff and say, wait a minute, something ain't right here. Also, they would, um, I used to work with a guy years ago and he was a retired New York police officer. And he had said, you know, that when they're shootings, they always spray that. And I forget, there's a name of the stuff, but they can, 
and, and that's what they would have done to this uh, to the uh, to the bad guy who got shot in the face. They would have checked it. They would see that he didn't um, have any powder residue on his hands. So again, everything would have fallen apart. And I, I don't know. I think there would have been a better way to resolve it uh, than the way that they did. Because I, I, for me, again, all that stuff, I, it, it really took me out of the movie, the ending of it. Because I, I just all that stuff popped into my head. I'm like, they're not gonna buy that. You know, this isn't 1958. Uh, you know, and in that's one thing that with, and, and that they didn't really do in the Dash with, yeah, excuse me, the Death Wish movie, either. Uh, but of course, that movie was made back in '74, and I'll talk more about that movie on uh, the next show. Hopefully, I'll be able to get this the next show out within the next um, couple of days. Uh, I'll try and get it recorded. Watch them, maybe watch the movie tonight, and uh, get it get a, a recording going of it. And uh, see if I can't do my commentary on that and then put that out, hopefully, like I said, within the next couple of days, maybe by uh, Friday or so. The day's actually Wednesday when this is going to drop. So, all right, guys, I will uh, talk to you later. Um, if you want to contact me, don't forget, we've got, you can do it through email. You can send me an MP3. You can send me the email at uh, thearmedape at gmail.com all one word thearmedape at gmail.com I've also got the voicemail I didn't get shit on the, on the voicemail since I've gotten it from either of my podcasts so I'd love to hear from you guys even if you just say hey you're a douche or even if you just call up and say hey this is Jim from Wyoming you know you're a douche ha ha and then hang up you know uh, have fun with it and uh, like I said, I'll play those on the next show. Or if you send me any emails, I'll go ahead and do that. Again, if you got any product reviews, if you got anything that you would like me to review, um, and it can be on anything. Again, it doesn't have to be, you know, outdoor related or camping related or firearms related. If you got a review on a movie, or if you've got different opinions on uh, on some of the points that I made, you know, give me a call on the voicemail line. That's uh, area code two zero six. 339-3266. And again, that number is area code 206-339-3266. This guy's got a monkey scrotum and he's bragging about it. Oh,